I'm sure some of you would think, well, I've heard many sermons on prayer before, Tim. In my time, I've heard, I can probably count on, I need lots of hands to count how many times someone's spoken about prayer. And often we come away from these sermons thinking two things, don't we? I need to pray more, and I need to pray harder. And those are the things that we always come away with, thinking a, a little bit of a prayer one of those sermons where it's almost like a guilt trip. Preacher at the front talks about their wonderful prayer life, well, that ain't going to happen today because I struggle with my prayer life as much as you do. The preacher talks about how great it is in there, that we need to pray harder and more fervently. And all that happens is that we go away thinking, not good enough. And the danger sometimes is that we get this really warped idea of prayer. That the more we pray and the harder that we pray, the more God will do things. And that's wrong. I want to say that here now. That's wrong. You praying harder, you praying fervently, will not make God work in different ways. It might be that we understand who God is more. A phrase that I use more and more is that prayer is about being in our heartbeat matching God's heart. But the more we pray, the more we spend time with God. Yes, we understand God more and more. But don't think that by you not praying as hard as you should do, that God's going to work with you. Now, as Brian has already said, we're at this part in the early church, as we look at the early church, where Peter and John, uh, two weeks ago, we read that they healed a, a man uh, at the gate, beautiful, I think it was. And uh, he went away, and, and all of a sudden Peter and John are then brought before the Sanhedrin and to make an answer, why, what, in whose authority, in whose power are you doing these things? And we read last week that uh, as they were before the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin couldn't do anything but release them. They were in a bit of a lose-lose situation. And we come to this part of the, the Acts, the New Testament, the the new church part of this story, where Peter and John go back to their own people. They go back to the community of faith. Go back to their friends and their family. It'd been a, quite a difficult time, I'd imagine. I mean, we read it in just a few chapters, but this was a nice staying up, wondering, will I be free? Will I be going back to see my family? And when they come back and share all that happened, What's the first thing they do? They pray. They pray. Now, some of you will know that on my sabbatical, I looked at songs. I, I believe, and I, I'm, I'm kind of still writing and, and talking with other people, that in the Bible, there is a very clear pattern of how songs are structured. That you start with praise, you start with then go to testimony, and then they sing about what they want God to do. And actually, we see exactly the same in the, in the prayer that the, uh, Peter and John with the community of disciples pray together. It starts with praise, doesn't it? Paul, could we just put up um, that reading again? And um, I think it's next. Uh, yeah, so. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They start with prayer and praise, recognising who God is. Not starting with, we've had a tough time, God. Where are you? 
starting saying, we recognise that you are God and that you are worthy to be praised. They then go on. You spoke to the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And they actually then recite Psalm 2. Thanks, Peter. I think it's more than two. It's lovely having the sun out, isn't it? Well, let's write your eyes. They use Psalm 2 to share their testimony, saying that they've been hands that are difficult, those who have raged against them. Indeed, in 27, it says, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with Gentiles and people, and they say what's happened. And in their prayer, then at the end, they give a prophetic word. They say, 29, Now, Lord, consider the threats and enable servants to speak up with boldness. Stretch out your hand. Heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your son, your servant, Jesus. There's a pattern. There's a pattern to their prayers of praise, of recognising who God is, of saying what's happened, and then asking God to run. I think it's a great model for that. You know, I've written, I've written, I've wrote a sermon, written, wrote a sermon. And I'm in there praying before the service on my own. And what I'm doing, I'm giving God a shocking list. God, I pray this morning that people will hear from you. I'm praying that, that, that there will be good a spirit of people, that this will happen, that that will happen. Lord, would be great if that happened. And that's the challenge and the difficulty. And I've said it so many times, and I fall foul of this. Our prayers just become a shopping list. Whether we like it or not, a shopping list. Now that's not wrong. But you can't have chocolate all the time. You've got to have other things. You've got to have a full vegetables, meat if you are in um, All these kind of things. And sometimes in our diet of food, our diet of prayer, we just want the dessert all the time. God, could you do this? God, could you do that? And it's interesting, the disciples pray. They don't want retaliation. They don't say, Lord, kill those who are in, in the wrong or, or strike them down with mighty wrath. They just ask God, consider us in this time. Consider our plight. Consider the journey that you have set us on. Consider your servants. And I do sometimes pray like that. Lord, all these things are going on. But consider your servants. What can we do? Tell us. Show us. Share with us. What is it you want us to do in the difficulties that you see that are around? It's not saying, Lord, we think we should be doing this or we should be doing that. Consider us. Consider what we can do. But I think it's amazing when, uh, if I was to be released from prison, what would be the first thing I'd do? Yes, I'd go to the family. I'd sleep. I'd rest. I'd party. I'd celebrate. But the disciples, the first thing they do is pray. Again, 
They want their heartbeat to be in step with God's heartbeat. Last week we spoke about speaking with holy boldness, didn't we? That actually God empowers us to speak boldly and powerfully. And that's something of sign we see within the early church. And very easily, whereas last week we considered it about speaking with holy boldness, we could quite easily call this week praying with holy boldness. Why? Well, verse 31, we just put that on. It's one verse. One verse in the Bible. And yet I think it's profound and huge. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaking. Was shaken. And they were filled with all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. It's a second Pentecost, the third Pentecost. Pentecost being a repeated action, not just a one-off. The Spirit came at Pentecost, which we will be looking at in May. But let's not think that that is almost uh, just a one-off, and we have to live off the drapes of that Pentecost. The Pentecost, the Spirit is continually coming and moving and shaping and working in us. But it's that first bit, the meeting, where they were meeting was shaken. What does that mean? I want to speak to the writer of Acts and say, what do you mean? Did it physically shake? Was there, was there a power there that was so vibrant that, that, that they couldn't put it in any other way that the meeting room was shaking? I would have loved to be there, wouldn't you? It would be one of those moments where you kind of go, oh, I prayed for Antidorus, I prayed for this for that, and nothing ever seems to happen, God. We've met for prayer in church on a Monday morning and we pray and nothing's happened. We've, we've met in our homes and prayed and nothing's happened. We've prayed together, I've prayed on my own, and just once, God, once could we pray together and the meeting room shake. Just once. Wow. And what happens to their prayers? Well, we don't know. In one sense, they're unanswered. Some would argue that in chapter 5 we see a glimpse of an answer. But you see, in those moments, God, in that moment, in verse 31, God doesn't answer them. But God comes and is with them. The Spirit moves. He empowers them. God doesn't answer in that moment, but they probably went from that place being full of joy. Holy boldness. Sometimes it doesn't take God answering our prayers to be filled like that way, does it? Sometimes we just know that He's there with us, journeying, that we have His power within us. And so, prayer, I believe, underpinned the early church. In everything they did, they prayed together. Prayer was so important. It was foundation. Everything they did was underpinned by prayer. And do we read in the Bible the disciples pray together and everything was cushy and happy and lovely thank you very much? Do we pray that the disciples pray together and miraculously everything they uttered within those moments was answered? Don't do we? 
actually read that they prayed together. And life was tough. Life was hard. But that relationship with God, that listening to the heartbeat of God in prayer, and trying to see if our heartbeat can be with God's heartbeat, underpin what they did. Even, even as we approached Easter, which is just creeping up on us so quickly, it's unreal. What does Jesus do before that journey for the arrest, uh, the, the, the death and the resurrection? He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays. He prays. He wants his heartbeat to be in tune, in beat with God, his Father's heartbeat. And he pleads, doesn't he? If there's any other way, God, if there's any other way, let it be. But he knows that as his heart beats with the heart of the Father, that this is the way. And at the beginning of our Easter journey, yes, okay, we have palms on the before, but when it comes to the climax at the very beginning, he prays. prays. And interestingly, with the disciples' prayer in Acts, the prayers were wider than just about Aunt Doris. And if you've got an Aunt Doris, I'm sorry, she's been picked up today. But they were wider than Aunt Doris. <clears throat> it was for a nation. It was for a people. Two different people, independently of emailing the last three weeks, saying, we should be praying for our town of Saltash. Not just the individuals, but the town, the place, the people, yes, we should be praying, not just for Aunt Doris, who lives at number 44, but for her neighbours, for that street, for that community. Because when we look at the disciples, that's what they do. They pray for a people. Sometimes our prayers can be made. And that's not wrong. Let's not hear him saying we should pray for individuals. But the problem is sometimes we so focus on individuals and individual situations that we forget to pray for the wider community, the people, the nation. And sometimes I'm guilty of this myself. And I was thinking as I was preparing this sermon, we have this on um, on the street in Fall Street when people come to pray. Prayer. What does that mean? Should we have almost a one wall that says things to give thanks for? One wall that says things to ask for? People to pray for? We, we sometimes are so narrow in our prayer. We need to understand it as wider. This week, here for you. So, I was, I, I was away at the Baptist Minister's Conference. Yes, it's as exciting as it sounds, believe me. And, um, and uh, Janet Howden came to me and she said, oh, we didn't get anybody in for an hour there. And your heart goes a little bit like, oh, never mind, you get next time. And then uh, Michelle told me, Michelle anyway told me that someone had come after her. My heart leapt. My heart leapt because I just thought, that's about being there, being in the community, and people having the opportunity to pray. Monday morning, when we first started Monday morning prayers, there were three of us. Myself, four of us, 
this last week, there were prophetic words spoken. Prophetic, not prophetic. Prophetic words spoken in our church. The first one was blessing us as a church. And saying that God was going to be with us. But it's the second one that just caught my attention in relation to this week. At the beginning of the prayer, I read the calling of the disciples. And someone said, and, and I can't remember the exact wording, I won't say it was, but if, if I'm completely wrong, they can correct it. But something on the lines of, well, I don't know why this is appropriate this time, but there's that sense of we keep doing things and, and, and not seeing the results, and sometimes it's the waiting, and having to be in that waiting. And they said, and I'm not quite sure what that means for us at the moment. And if by some, I've never been someone who, who, who interprets anything like that. But I knew at that moment exactly what God was saying. And I believe God was saying this. And I'll say as I sit now, okay, if this is wrong, ignore it. And God will show you if it's wrong. But if it's right, let it sit in the heart. I said, yes. Those disciples. When Jesus said to them, throw your nets on the other side, they weren't on shore, were they? They weren't working on the shore. They were in the deep water. And they'd be toiling and struggling and saying, oh, where are the fish? But they were in the right place for God to then say, throw your nets on the other side. And it was at that moment that the disciples were then able to get the and I think God is saying the same to us. Here for you, prayer station. You might not be seeing lots of things happening at the moment. Too. And yes, when this is something I go, come on, I want people, I want that board to be filled up. I want people to be stopping in the streets and going, oh, we've been so silly all our lives. Let's follow Jesus now. And God's saying, no, it's not going to work like that. Too. But you need to be out there. You need to be in the deep water, in the shop on Street. Because the moment I say, throw your nets on the other side, you're not just sat in your building. You're not just in your own house. You're out in the deep water. And when I say, throw my nets on the other side, be ready. Be ready. Because it's going to be a long finish. I come back as we close. So therefore, does prayer underpin our lives like it did with the urge? Does it underpin us in our private life? And this is not me saying pray more. This is saying where does prayer feature in your life? It might be you say, actually, I pray while I'm driving the car. Great, just don't close your eyes. You might go and pray when I have a shower each morning. Great. And does it underpin all that you do for that? When we meet and gather together, does prayer underpin who we are and what we are? Does it underpin? One of the challenges that I'm going to put on, put on the growing deeper groups this week, and I wasn't going to say this, but I will say it now. But if prayer is so important, and this is not a guilt trip, please, this is not a guilt trip. Saying, if prayer is so important, why do we not have prayer meetings going on all the time in the life of this church? Why are Monday mornings 
three, sometimes only get four or five people. People work, I get that. But I don't have people knocking on my door going, we set up a prayer meeting that's going to be Tuesday evening or something. And it's my fault as well, completely my fault. But does prayer underpin all that we are? The emphasis in prayer is on God. It's not about how, how much we pray. We can say more than that. But if we're serious about prayer, then we need to hear the heartbeat of God. And to do that, we need to meet together and share together. <coughs> Friends, the Spirit moved on that. It moved powerfully. 